Call me, won't you? Written by Alice Althea. Read by Kaylin Wrights. Chapter 2. Friday, April 6th. Juggling an armful of paper shopping bags wasn't exactly easy, but Harry liked to think that he'd made an art of it over the years. It was a calculation of measurements, heavier at the bottom, an even distribution of weights with an emphasis on placement in the crook of his elbow, because he found that worked best. It was always a good idea to loop his key ring over his finger, too, tucking it into his fist, because the juggling act became a full-blown circus performance when he had to shift and adjust his load to ruffle for his house keys. It would have probably been easier with a trolley, or a car for that matter, but Harry had never owned a car. He'd never found the need, despite Ron's frequent assurances that his own antique Alfa Romeo was a gift from a god he didn't even believe in. Ron had taken after his father in his affection of cars when he'd earned the money to indulge in it. But Harry? Harry had never been partial to materialistic possessions. Beyond the initial crow-like obsession with the glitter of gold he'd experienced as an eleven-year-old, it was all just stuff, really. Harry didn't have a car, but the walk from the supermarket wasn't really that bad. Twenty minutes at a leisurely pace, and fifteen if he lengthened his stride. Besides, the route had its own advantages, its own pit stops, that he wouldn't miss for the world. Turning onto Chancy Street, Harry readjusted his hold to dig into one of the top bags. He'd positioned it perfectly for easy reach, and it took little more than a practiced pop of the ring pull for him to snap open the tin of tuna. Crouching alongside the bushes lining the fence of number one, Harry nudged it into the shadows of the overhang. A simple exchange for the empty tin, and he straightened once more to continue down the road. You spoil that beast, Harry, a voice called from across the road. Turning towards number four, Harry smiled. Good afternoon, Gladys. Gladys harumphed, smacking her lips as she shuffled down the steps from her front door. Dressed in a night robe and slippers, she looked as though she was ready for bed, though Harry would wager that she hadn't dressed herself since climbing from her sheets that morning. Her hair a mess of wisps, the wrinkled lines of her face set into perpetual disgruntlement. She was nothing, if not a deterring presence. Harry approached her splintered fence without pause. Where have you been? Out and about all day, Gladys grumbled, edging towards the opposite side of the fence. A gnarled hand appeared, hooking over the fractured top as she squinted up at him. There's this thing called work that most of the world has to do on a daily basis, Harry said with a laugh. Gladys grumbled something unintelligibly before nodding back to the corner Harry had just passed. Has the beast had its kittens yet? I'm not sure, Harry glanced over his shoulder. Do you think I should leave a little extra from now on, what with winter just passed and everything? Winter's long gone already, and you want to leave more to fatten the old girl up? Yeah. Are you trying to breed a troop of strays? Harry shrugged. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. It could liven up the street a little. This old hovel doesn't need livening up, Gladys muttered pursing her lips. It's already too noisy with those young hooligans down the road. Harry turned in the direction of Gladys's jabbing thumb. As befit her words, a collection of youngsters, barely school-age, idled in bursts of laughter and shouts as they picked along the gutter. I take it Mary's home today. They're only ever making noise when she is, Gladys said, folding her arms over the top of the fence. Young hoons. 
Why she thinks it's perfectly fine that they make such noise outside, when she doesn't like it inside, I'll never know. Is she sick again? Harry asked. She's always sick, Gladys said, frowning, and though her disgruntlement remained, there was a touch of sympathy to her tone. Harry hummed as he gazed towards the cluster of children. Two sets of twins really did make for a lot of noise. He couldn't blame Mary for sending them outdoors for a bit of peace and quiet. Maybe I should make something to send over for dinner, he murmured, mostly to himself. Oh, so you're going to add Mary to your collection of strays now, are you? Gladys said, tapping Harry's wrist with a yellowing nail. Harry smiled at her again. One of many. And speaking of, he adjusted his load and plucked a small pot of wilting basil from the top bag. I got you a replacement. Gladys's eyes brightened, even as her lips pursed again. Looks like it's nearly dead, it does, she said, reaching for the plant. Maybe you could breathe some life back into it, Harry said. It'll take a miracle. I have faith in you. Gladys's smile was fractured but true. She patted his cheek with a snap of fingers just a little sharper than comfortable, but Harry didn't mind. You're a good lad. Don't go throwing that faith around everywhere willy-nilly. Yes, ma'am, Harry said, and with a final smile, he turned and continued down the street. It was a stunted street, which was about the kindest thing that could be said of it. Stunted, a little dirty, and crammed full of too many houses to afford adequate breathing space. Those houses were squat and stunted themselves, too small for a full-sized family, and usually a mottled mess of patchwork repairs and failing fences. There was less than one fully functioning front garden amongst them all, serving a somewhat drab impression upon first glance. Harry loved it. He'd never been partial to materialism, but there had been a time when he'd indulged, when he'd cleaned up Grimmauld Place until it no longer befit its name, tossing money around simply because he could, and living the life, as Ginny had jokingly called it. That time had passed, the novelty losing its appeal, and retrospect had Harry reflecting upon a cupboard under the stairs, upon oversized shirts and trousers that didn't fit, and comparing it to what he had now. It all felt abruptly excessive. As a child, he'd wanted, needed, more. But this? He didn't need it. When he thought about it, Harry didn't really want it, either. Just as he really, really didn't want that every witch or wizard and their great-aunt knew where he lived. A change of location helped with that. Hermione's ingenious magic helped even more deflecting all but a handful of witches and wizards like a muggle-repelling charm would to the non-magical. Chancy Street might be a hovel, in Gladys's words, and it might not hold much appeal to anyone who could afford better, but it had become Harry's home. Why the bloody hell would you want to live in a shack? Ron had said when he'd first seen Harry's house. It had landed him a sharp cuff from Ginny, who glared at him as though he'd declared he'd developed a taste for eating babies. What the fuck, you imbecile? That's not really appropriate, Ron, Hermione had said, though she too was never quite able to reconcile Harry's choice of location. Harry didn't blame any of them, really. Nor did he blame Ginny for never feeling quite at home there when they'd lived together. It was his choice, after all, and with the less-than-extravagant accommodation that the borough had been, Harry might hold an enduring love for the Weasley's house, 
but Ron and Ginny had never quite shared that rose-tinted love of the house itself. They knew its flaws intimately. When it came down to it, though, Harry loved Number 15, Chansey Street. He loved it just as he'd grown to love the handful of neighbors that dared to peek out of their houses on occasion. Pausing alongside his own fence, Harry turned towards the cluster of children across the road. Hey, Annabelle, he called. One of the little girls paused where she was waving her stick like a sword, spinning towards him. Her sword waved in greeting. Hi, Harry. Hey, he said, adjusting his load once more. Careful with those sticks, you guys. Okay, okay the four of them chorused. I'm in charge, so I'll make sure, Annabelle assured him. I'm sure you will, Harry said. Is Mum home sick today? Yeah, she's got the flu real bad. Again? Yeah. Harry frowned. Poor Mary. She'd been run off her feet from the day he'd met her and hadn't slowed in step since. Can you stop by my house in about an hour? I'll send you something over for dinner. The four of them beamed with wide smiles and gap teeth. Oh, oh, can we have spaghetti? Jonathan asked, bouncing on the balls of his feet, his own sword stick hanging forgotten in his hand. I'll see what I can do, Harry said, smirking. The outburst of delight as he turned away from them made it a sure thing. An hour to whip up a dinner for five, he thought, biting his lip as he let himself through the gate. That's far from impossible, but I'd better get on with... His phone rang. Pausing in step once more, Harry huffed as he considered his arm load. In an awkward maneuver that had him almost dropping the lot, he managed to pry it from his pocket and flip it open. An unknown number, which was far from being unusual, but maybe... Hello? Hello, this is David from the Build Me Up Foundation. How are you this evening? Oh, David. You're the bloke who called the other day. Yes, sir, that was me. You still sound like a robot, mate. That accent isn't doing you any favours. It's not Londoner, is it? What area? I can't pick it. I... No, you know what it is? It's that weird distortion thing. I couldn't get it at first, but yeah, that's it. Are you calling from overseas? You... No, wait, that's not right. Build me up as a British charity. That doesn't really make sense. It must be the line. Probably interference. Not to make an accusation or anything. I'm just saying. Just reminds me of those secure lines or something like that, in a spy film. Of course. Sorry, I didn't mean to make any assumption. Not at all, sir. I'm calling regarding our previous conversation on Tuesday. As requested, you have been added to our call list. Oh, fuck. Sir? Shit, I'm so sorry. I completely forgot about that. Sir? Um, so this is going to sound really bad, but I'm broke again. What? Yeah, I swear. I literally got paid yesterday. You're broke? And there was a whole bunch of bills that came in and I- How the hell are you broke, Potter? What? Shit. Do you... Wait, do you know me? How? Did your foundation get a hold of people's names somehow? No, it's... We... Because that actually surprises me. Usually it's just telemarketers who do that. No, sir. We... We don't... Um... 
We don't have access to our clients' names prior to calling. You don't? No, sir. Then how... Oh, oh, are you a wizard? Is that it? Sir? Literally no muggle in the world actually knows who I am, I reckon. Or at least they don't know well enough to know my voice. That's bloody cluey of you, though. You've got a good ear, especially on this line. Um... Actually, now that I think about it, that's probably what's messing up the connection. It's... what? Yeah, it happens sometimes with muggle tech. Or at least, apparently it does. I don't know anything about that kind of thing. What? Is Build Me Up actually a wizarding charity, then? Bloody hell, I didn't know that. I thought I was signed up to all the wizarding ones. I... we... they're not. They're not? Then... Um, yes, well, if you don't... What did you mean by that, by the way? I'm sorry? What you said before. You asked, how am I broke? I... I... I'm not annoyed or anything, I'm just curious. You... Yeah? You're Harry Potter. Yeah, I know. I have been for about 27 years. You're famous. Yep, realized that about 16 years ago. You receive constant promotions and interviews on an almost weekly basis. More than likely have shares in a dozen companies if you've any sense, and have an inheritance to rival that of most pure, uh, upper-class families. Forgive me for my skepticism, but you appear to be rather disingenuous. You can't say purebloods? What? Huh. I guess you must be surrounded by muggles, then. A muggle workplace? I... I do have shares, and I do get paid for interviews, and to speak my thoughts on whatever issue people for some reason think is relevant that I talk about. And yeah, I had an inheritance bigger than what I knew what to do with. So I gave it up. You what? I gave it up. You gave up your inheritance? Yeah, I didn't need it, so I gave it up. You're... Unfortunately, I paid out my last check from the interview last week already, too. I swear, I actually forgot I was meant to donate to you today. I swear. You... But I'd really like to. I mean it. I haven't had much to do with muggle charities, seeing as most of the time the wizarding ones are more related to the war. So, you know, it just makes more sense to donate to them first. But you're sort of related to it, too, so I'd like to. Hello? I knew you paid out to several establishments. What? I read about it. Spell a heart, golden wreaths, women of war. It was splashed across the papers years ago. You were a hero all over again. I'd say thanks, but I'm getting the impression you're not saying that splashing was a good thing. You're still supporting their endeavors? What do you mean? Even though headlines no longer speak of it. So? That doesn't mean the charities don't still do good work. Why would I stop? Is that weird? Surely someone besides myself has addressed this issue of yours, Potter. Issue? What issue is... Hold on, who are you exactly? Are you... Are you maybe a squib? What? No, I'm not a... a, a, a... I didn't mean any offence. There's nothing wrong with being a squib. Potter, you... You just know a whole lot about the wizarding world and its media, for someone who works in a muggle company. People like that are few and far between, so... 
I guess I'm just curious. Evidently. I don't mean to pry. Less evidently. Sorry, David. David? Sir, I regret I have called you at this most inopportune time. I similarly regret to pester you unnecessarily, and to encourage you to extend yourself outside your current capacity. What? Thank you for your time, and we at Build Me Up sincerely appreciate your consideration. Should you find yourself in a more suitable financial position, we would be delighted to reconsider your enthusiastic efforts to donate. You're going right back into full robot mode, huh? Most charity callers don't do that, you know. They're a lot more personable. Yes, sir, most likely. Is that sarcasm? I admit I don't know what you mean, sir. Right. Can you try again next week? Sir, if this attempt is unsuitable to your circumstances... You have to meet a quota, right? Do you work commission? I'll make it worth your while, I promise. I've got a lump sum coming in next Tuesday. David? Thank you for your consideration. Will you actually call again? I'd like to make it up to you a bit, for throwing you around and all. It doesn't bother me. Your robot voice doesn't make you sound very convincing. David? I'll reattempt next week. Great. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. David? You have to be the one to hang up, Potter. It's not part of my job. Seriously? They make you wait until the person on the other end hangs up? Potter. Right. Sorry. Speak next week. Staring down at his phone, the battered face alight with the end call screen, Harry found himself frowning. There wasn't anything particularly unusual about the interaction. Or, well, there was, especially given he'd battled through his fair share of telemarketers since he'd first outfitted himself with what Hermione has assured him was a necessary mode of contact after they'd all moved out of Grimmauld Place. It was an obsession of sorts she'd developed, on par with Ron's affection for cars. She'd even gotten him the magic-adjusted version, which had the unfortunate byproduct of linking him into every call center registry available in Britain. What was strange was David. Harry knew that the wizarding world extended beyond the borders of witches and wizards. It went further than Diagon Alley, than the Leaky Cauldron, than Hogwarts and the reclusive neighborhoods of magical communities. Not every witch or wizard felt the need to cozy up to those of their own kind, and since moving out of that field of coziness himself, Harry had come across more and more people just like himself. He'd never found anyone quite so removed as to be a worker of a charity call center, though. There were certain degrees of closeness that magical folk tended to keep, certain almost compulsive strings of attachment that he, too, couldn't quite cut himself loose. From his conversation with David, David the nut-squib, the nut-muggle, some things were very apparent. 1. He didn't like his job. If his less-than-enthusiastic approach was any indication, it sounded less of an impassioned pursuit of fundraising for a good cause and more of an obligation. 2. He worked at an entirely muggle establishment, evident not only from his self-censorship, but from the hazy connection that Harry recognized as being characteristic of the sort of overlay experienced by wizards and phone lines. That in itself was strange enough. For himself, 
Harry couldn't name a single witch or wizard working at a company that wasn't at least partially owned by the wizarding world. Which led to three, the most sobering. David, whoever he was, was a criminal of the war. David might have read about Harry, but Harry was more than aware of just what such criminals were forced into from his own reading. Years ago, so many years that most witches and wizards would likely have forgotten about the sentence, it had been tucked into the back pages of the Daily Prophet, rather than given front and center stage, as every Azkaban conviction or Dementor's kiss had assumed. As lesser sentences, for accessories of the war deliberately or incidentally supporting the actions and intentions of he who must not be named, subjects will be required to serve a prescribed term of muggle-immersive employment to the restriction of wizarding contact. Such persons will be monitored throughout their sentence, and breaches of the boundaries of their parole will be immediately retrialed with potential for guilty outcome and further removal to Azkaban prison. At the time, it had seemed fair. No one had spoken against it, if any had spoken at all. They're getting what they deserve, was met by nods and agreements that they're lucky it wasn't worse. Harry remembered all too well the conversation over the Weasley's breakfast table, the frowns and sage nods. He remembered, too, meeting Hermione's eyes across the table, remembered her thinned lips and the unvoiced, Is it really fair, though? Harry didn't answer her, but he silently agreed. It hadn't seemed fair, not really. For those who had been caught up on the wrong side, who had been implemented, who had been forced. Was David one of those people? There had never been a list of names, never a direct outing of those to receive such a sentence. The division between Azkaban prisoners and other was drawn, and while the prophet had made a show of leading the convicted criminals away in manacles, heads bowed and wands confiscated, the others had been effectively swept under the rug. Harry hadn't agreed, hadn't felt it was right, but he hadn't spoken against it. He couldn't. Not when his own face was pasted upon the other half of the double spread, the supposed beacon of hope for the people he'd saved, the people who deemed him a hero. That beacon had never been extinguished. It never went out naturally, either. Rather, it kept on flaring, bright and promising, and Harry had grown all too practiced at ducking and dodging away from worshipful faces and vibrant stares. It was part of the reason he'd moved so far from Grimmauld Place. People like David, though. David didn't get a glance. Not in pity, in sympathy, or even in hatred. Frown deepening, Harry slid his phone into his back pocket and readjusted his hold on his shopping bags once more. If donating a significant amount to the Build Me Up Foundation, a muggle charity, and one that David had been forced to work for, could lighten his clearly dissatisfying day, then Harry would pay it. Hell, he'd pay it even if a wizard wasn't unfairly implicated. Sparing a final glance for the kids across the road, he'd have to get a move on if he was going to whip up a dinner in his abruptly shortened time. Harry turned back to his battered front door. The house was small, just like its neighbors almost ridiculously small, or so Ginny had always told him. It was part of the reason she'd moved out in the first place. Or the primary reason, though she had often said, It's not that I'm feeling awkward living with you, but boarding with your ex is just kind of... Harry suspected the size of the house was more of a secondary reason. It was simple, a little shabby, 
There was that window that needed repairing, because the neighborhood wasn't great, and drunks liked to throw things. The key stuck in the lock when he twisted it too far, and the electricity went down more often than it should. But it was home, protected by more than just a magical glamour to mask from prying or magical eyes. It was all Harry's, in his much-needed privacy, because he was entitled to be exactly where he pleased. People like David weren't so lucky.